This is Emerging Possibilities, powered by Volvo Group Australia. Here we talk to industry experts about the future of mobility and how it will shape both our lives and the world we live in. Welcome to another episode of Emerging Possibilities. My name is Matt Wood and joining me in the studio once again is Tim Camilleri, our e-mobility solutions manager and co-host. Thanks and for having uh, me back, Matt, and allowing me back. Uh, you know, you're on... Um, Be nice again? No, you're on probation. Uh, <laughs> our guest in the studio today is Jard Clifford-Bolt, who's the Market Development Manager, Clean Mobility for Mondo Power. Again, these job titles just like... Yeah, yeah. What's yours again? I can't remember. It changes every other day. The guy who moves trucks. The guy anyway, who moves trucks. There we go. It is on my to-do list to, to get that changed at some point, but you're not quite sure it really says what I do in the tin, but oh, well, yeah. But <laughs> pleased to be here nonetheless. Oh, yeah. good. Yes, yeah, thanks for having me. Really good to be here. And like a lot of these things, I think it'd be really great to hear who you are and what you do. Yeah, sure. So I lead the clean mobility infrastructure development team at Osnet Mondo. Osnet is a owner of electricity and gas infrastructure, primarily in Victoria, but we do own several things interstate as well. We own a transmission grid in Victoria, distribution grid and a gas network and a whole host of other stuff electricity, gas, water meters, batteries, solar. If it's sort of a fixed piece of energy infrastructure, we tend to like to own it or be involved in it somehow. We don't own everything, but we are fairly big, 10, 12 billion of assets bought by Brookfield as of April. And so part of the Brookfield family, which is great. So I head up the clean mobility infrastructure team there. What we're trying to do is build electric vehicle infrastructure for commercial operators done that very strategically, specifically to focus in on commercial operators because they have bigger problems than the average consumer. And just in Victoria or? No, nationwide. No, no, nationwide. In fact, most of our work at the moment is in New South Wales. Okay, awesome. It's quite interesting like talking about like the bigger problems because of the bigger fleets and the bigger vehicles and all that sort of stuff. What's been really interesting are some of the commentary that we've had. In fact, one of the journalists I took to IAA, who's a EV journalist and a commentator on renewables, but not had anything to do with the transport industry before. Absolutely blown away by how advanced the transport industry was in terms of how much momentum was building in terms of product development. So there's that aspect. Now there's where you guys are, which is they're only as good as the infrastructure that powers them, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, a lot of industries need the infrastructure backbone, so to speak, to be built at sort of national scale. Yes, you've got sites and you've got precincts and you've got states and different things. It's All of this has to be built out in a coordinated and structured fashion so that operators, buses, trucks, last mile delivery fleets, utes, they can all do what they need to do and run their businesses because it's a big transformation they're going through. You say it's coordinated, Jared, but is it coordinated on your side of things or you with other players in the market as well? So is it just a Mondo problem that you're solving or are you working with others to make sure that there's a, a flush network to support this transition? I think the answer is both. I think there's definitely a multi-layer argument here where a lot of operators, so like some of the others on your podcasts, will need private infrastructure. They'll need stuff at their sites for their depots, only for their operations. That makes sense. Time criticality in, and they want to invest in their own assets. There's a lot of big argument for shared infrastructure, industrial precincts, business parks, those sorts of things where 
customers can't or won't or don't want to. The site uh, may not allow it. It's not feasible right. for one truck or one bus or whatever it is. So you have a shared facility that yeah. gets everyone off the ground at least or is dependable in another way. Absolutely. Yeah. And then beyond that, there's also a very, very good case for national infrastructure, major trucking thoroughfares and trucking routes. It's something we're working on. Can't really tell you too much about it at the moment, but there's a really interesting model that we're working on. So to answer your question, we want to be able to do a lot for the transport industry holistically, you know, all, all the flavors of transport and, and types of transport, but we can't do it at all. We can't do it alone. It's a, it is an ecosystem and we very much want to exist in that ecosystem. We will be collaborating with, in some ways, competitors. We'll be competing against collaborators. At the end of the day, the task here is huge. Some of the numbers you see come out, tens of billions, even up to a hundred billion, depending on whose numbers you look at and on what time scale. You cut them in half, they're still huge. You cut them by two thirds, they're still huge. At the end of the day, there's a lot to be built. And you know we're one of the big entities out there who can do it. That's a very similar philosophy that we take as well. This industry, as it emerges and grows, it should never be a Volvo industry, and I wholeheartedly own, but it needs to be a bit of everyone. And that's on competitor side of things, I guess, as well. But leaning into partnerships with the likes of yourselves and charging providers and operators, it, it is about working together to accelerate this as feasibly as possible. And I think so far, everything I've experienced when working in these partnerships and large-scale projects or if it's you and I having a conversation over a beer, Chad, you know, it is very all-encompassing. It's wanting to see success as an industry, not just for Mondo and Mondo has the pie and nick off everyone else. And, and I think that's what I've really enjoyed about this emerging space is that People want to collaborate. People want to work in partnerships. And we do have a huge task, depending on how quick you see it, depending if it's 2030 or push it out to 2035, how do we get it happening? How mm. do we make it happen successfully? Absolutely. There's a lot of frontiers to innovate on and a lot of new models and customers to help along their journey. There's a lot for everybody to do at the end of the day. And I think picking in the first instance, perhaps picking the things that we're best at might actually get us started and rolling faster. So we're good at building, owning, and operating infrastructure. We're a natural owner of energy infrastructure. That's what we do. We're really good at it. We own a lot of it. We have a big appetite to own more of it. And so the electrical infrastructure needed for commercial operators, be they large or small, around charging is absolutely things we can help with. You know, we're doing a lot of that at the moment. I think, you know, from my side of things, thinking and seeing how you've adapted your large-scale ownership models and infrastructure to suit whether it's a single depot or it's a precinct or whatever else, you know, adapting that to say, well, we've got to go on this journey. We have this rapid uptake happening. How do we facilitate the one bus, the one truck? How does that look like in a precinct of 100 trucks? And how do we think that's staying what you're good at, but adapting to facilitate growth? Oh, 100%. But probably I'm going to wind it back a little bit because it's probably the thing that comes up the most. kind of feel like we've gone from electric vehicles. They'll never work to, okay, there's a lot of them. The grid, the grid's not going to get, it's not going to handle it. We're all going to have no air conditioning and the lights won't work. Is the grid capable of supporting large-scale electrification? I think that's a fair enough sort of question to ask, right? Well, look, I think the general statement, and I won't speak too much for our regulated network, they're the core of our overall business and they hold the keys, so to speak, in managing how the grid in Victoria operates, make sure the lights stay on, build out the infrastructure in a very prescribed manner. They have spent some time looking at this problem. A lot of just distribution and transmission grids have looked at this problem. There's a huge energy and power problem coming. Make no mistake. But I think the structures, commercial structures, regulatory structures, you know, setting aside the uh, energy market turmoil and you know, yeah. call for reform at the moment, but 
those structures exist. We can build out the network in the ways we need to. We've also got time, I think, as well. We're not, pardon the pun, but flicking the switch tomorrow. We're not going to 100% electrification. No, we're yeah, not. But, uh, but I think it's good to be able to intercept the conversation now. So, like, uh, you know, I'm not trying to be alarmist. What I'm sort of more trying to get at is, is it a consideration? Because we're speaking to people that are investing a lot in their own end mm. of the grid. I think they see the frontline problem, which is, I can only get so many amps at so, uh, you know X voltage at my connection point, and I need far more than that. Yep. That's a big problem. In a lot of cases, for particularly larger projects that you may be working on or, or customers out there are experiencing, that's a very real challenge that if you're going for enough vehicles and a big enough project, there's kind of no way around it at a certain point. You, know, you want to try and optimize to stay under the, the threshold and the, allow yeah, us here. Yeah. You know, optimize your charging, optimize your existing loads so that you're not exceeding your grid limits and max demand levels and costing yourself a lot of money. But the interesting part about this, if you zoom out on a time scale, this is a big question of when, not if. This is all going to change on a particular time scale. And for some operators like bus operators in New South Wales, we've done a lot of work. That time is now. It is literally happening and they have not much of a choice about it. But other transport operators have a bit more discretion, but ultimately they will have to solve this problem. So Starting to plan for it and investing in these future assets and transition is actually of value. Now, when you actually put money on the table and make decisions on infrastructure is a secondary question, but it's coming and I think it's probably well worth for some of your customers to be aware that they need to start planning and thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. Those considerations are the ones that come up. It's a big investment in the vehicles, yeah. big investment in infrastructure. Does and the site take it? Is this the right site? Yeah. Well, yeah. What threshold of vehicle or charge rate or freight task do I need to flick over to a grid connection upgrade, a substation, a battery? Uh, grid connections are hard. It's a different language. It's very engineering heavy. There's a lot of jargon. It's a closed shop, really. There's a whole industry that everyone knows everyone. There's a bit of musical chairs, a bit of a carousel through all the DNSPs. DNSPs, distribution network service provider. Yep. So the, the distribution grids you see in, on your streets, it's a different world. And this is a, a world we live in. Like we speak that language and we can help navigate those sort of problems. And but what, it's not easy. And it's, it's, you know, you've got to think about staging assets over time. What options do you have? How do you value those options? What are the options that the network might give you to, in terms of time and cost, Sometimes what looks like it can be very simple can be very complex and vice versa. Um, so. And I suppose that's where I was going. Like, how do you overcome at, at this period in time? I mean, I know we're, it's a state of flux. Yeah. Things are developing and changing all the time. But what are some of the ways that you can overcome that, especially with those big projects? The biggest factor is time, to be honest. Yep. Start early, understand what you have, and then try to understand where you want to go. The clearer you can get that picture the easier it is in principle to then build the map of, okay, this is what we want to try to achieve and when. The really hard part, to be honest, is the network is always changing. It is possibly the most complex machine man has ever built, which is not my words, that's out there in the world. Like for example, and just to step down one level of detail, if you put in a grid connection application today, you kind of get the whatever capacity the network gives you, you get it reserved. That's for you and you go through the application then you build the assets and put into service. If you don't put the application, you just put an inquiry, for example, they could tell you, okay, today there's XYZ capacity. But then the person down the street is also wanting capacity. They'll take it. It's first in best dress. That's the reality. And so you think, oh, great, well, there's capacity here. And then six months later, you get to an actual transaction and say, well, okay, we've got it approved. We're going to go and hit go. Oh, wait, that capacity's gone. Now it's considerably more expensive to go and connect to the grid. The point is it's a constantly moving target which makes it really hard to make decisions, to be honest. 
it's not to be alarmist and sort of negative about it, but the sooner you can get a hold on what that looks like and then understand your own decision-making process and match the two to actually start being able to align the decision points, the better. I think that's a really important point. Like, I mean, we often get caught in the conversation of a vehicle and a range, charging time, blah, 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 blah. Maybe drill down from a commercial perspective in terms of productivity, utilization, all that sort of thing. But things like this are actually crucial as a part of the project. As crucial as your vehicles and your operations, I think you've heard in some of the previous podcasts of yours, you know, focus on getting the operations right. We're going through this with our own fleet, for example. The hard part is not the vehicles and the charging. The hard part is working with the operators at the coalface, so to speak, understanding how they use the vehicles, where they use the vehicles, convincing them that this might work and what their requirements and scope yeah. are and if the technical capability of the vehicles can satisfy that. And if not, how do you operationalize it and yeah. put in the procedures or policy for charging to make it happen? That is enormously complex. Yeah. And what we're seeing, and we see this with a lot of the bus projects we've been doing, at a certain point, you can't keep your operations the same. You actually need to start changing the way your operations work which is a scary concept for a lot of operators, right? Because they've done they, it for 50 years the same way. In they go, out they go, this is how it works. They structure their entire business around optimizing to get return on their assets and efficiency and highest value for their investment dollar. It's the way businesses should operate. But mm. all of a sudden, you've got a different the set of shifts. The yeah. input shifts, the considerations shift yeah. a little bit. So. Absolutely. You've got a completely different set of parameters to optimize around. And it's a big change. And to do it on the fly is not an easy task. So we've talked to some operators who are saying, well, I want to do this. I've got some kind of initial capital to do it, but I got to do my day job. How do I even start? I don't even know what questions to ask. So it's a difficult journey. So how do you tackle that? What does that conversation even look like? I've got 70 buses or 50 trucks. Yeah. I've got 50 buses. I mean, I, don't, I wouldn't even know where to start that conversation. I mean, there's all sorts of site assessments and gathering data. That's sort of, and We give that to our engineers, mm. a, lot of, a lot of those. There's a building the, building the map. Let's just see what this map looks like. Where are your constraints? You know, what does it look like? But I think the fundamental thing is, what is the target you're trying to hit here? Is it dollars per kilometer? Is it dollars per hour? Is it, you know- 50% of your fleet? Is it 100% of your fleet? Yeah. Is it over this time? What are the constraints and input and scope to how we yeah. lay this out? Yeah, what are you trying to achieve? Yeah, where are you yeah. trying to go with this? And that's then set some clarity around what the forward task to be solved is. And then you put some structure around that and then you iterate through that. And that can be a long process. Some of the big charging projects we've worked on for what might be up to 700 buses. On one site? Spread across five or six, potentially, yeah. over a, almost a decade. It's a very big project. Can't say too much about it, to be honest. It took us over six months to go through all of the initial planning, assessment, data gathering, analysis, to even build the picture of what this should actually look like and how to actually execute it. And execution is as important as the optimization, right? You've got to be actually build it and put it into service. Well, I, for one, are very thankful that we can learn from bus on the truck side of things. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah, we're not going to be at 700 or 100 per site for a while, I don't think, and we can learn from your mistakes as you go through. You can, <laughs> you can refine it with bus and then come to our side. But, you know, you know, we've talked about the constraints in this large-scale side of things. But, you know, for us, whether it's one, two, three trucks going to a fleet, 36 going into another one, like there are considerations at this level, but there also are some simplicities of it as well. And I think, you know, we spoke about before, your adaptability to the situation in hand. Yes, you are a large-scale infrastructure provider, but we start at one charger with one truck. In some situations, we start at 700 buses and five sites or whatever it is in another situation. So it's not always the grid won't cope. A lot of situations out there where we have capacity on sites, we, we go ahead and do what we do. But I think hedging it back to that is what does growth on a site 
from one bus, one truck to a hundred look like? How do you flesh that out? You've done your assessments, you know your data, you know your thresholds, you know your hopefully your you've reserved your capacity when need be or if need be, but what are some things you can do to optimize and refine that offering to make sure that the transition is easy as possible and mitigate the risk on the site? Yeah, it's a really good question. We see a lot of operators going through this. You know, they start small, which is sensible, and it's a good thing to do. We recommend that to be sure. It's like get one and learn with that. And then 10 comes along and you're not failing and grounding the fleet. It's a really positive way to do it. In a lot of ways, the only way to do it because you're not going to swing for the fence from the get-go. The problem with that approach is that what you learn from a small-scale trial, you validate the vehicles, they operate, you master the sort of basic art of charging. What you learn, though, from that trial is not actually what you need to do a wholesale transformation of a very large You still have to have the mindset of what a wholesale transformation looks like. You don't right. think about the one in respect to the hundred. Right. So, for example, charging a five or ten vehicles, in most cases, or a lot of cases, you can get your Sparky to install the charges. You can do a basic design. Yes, there are some assessments, there's some complexity, but then you move to 100 or even more vehicles across multiple sites. Or you faster have, or whatever it is. Yeah, exactly. You have suddenly a lot more of your usage cases are covered by electrification, which means you have to more than likely have much faster charging, higher power requirements, a higher amount of energy. And then you have all this complexity around, well, your power system almost guaranteed won't be able to handle the amount of amps and in some cases the voltage that you need. In the largest examples, we've had to basically rebuild the entire power system of the site, turn it into a high voltage network with a high voltage grid connection, which is very, very big departure from the skill set of the operator. Put in, in some cases, 70, 80, 100 charges with lots and lots of plug points and how do you make it all work together? That is a vast control system. It's got to be dynamic. It's got to be able to execute the charging algorithms because at the end of the day, this is critical infrastructure. It has to work. It has to function to allow these operators to run their business. And if you don't get it right, that's money. That's time. Service level agreements and all the rest of it. I think overall with that as well, it's a good point to say that on our side, normally it's uptime of the truck. But on your side, it is the uptime of your infrastructure as well. It's got to be reliable. Also got to be a little bit of fun to try and get into this space of optimizing and getting the best case scenario because at scale, you have flexibility into the product you choose, the software that optimizes it, the methodology uh, in which the charging procedure happens between the different vehicles. Like it's... There's a lot of factors to it, but getting it right must be pretty sweet. So I think you're right. The thing that remember, though, is there may not be one right answer. No, and, and, and it's not a cookie-cutter approach. You, you can't apply the same result and outcome from one site to another. 100%. You can, but the same scope and procedure you've got there, you can apply with different variables along the way. Right. I think any good engineers will have sort of good sound principles and perhaps even building blocks that so we, you know, engineers not all do good, that. Not all engineers have good sound principles. I am an engineer, so, you know, <laughs> well, you some, of them, some of them are a bit wayward. Well, you are exceptional too. Yeah, we'll that's that. exceptional. <laughs> <laughs> I like the fact that you actually throw those lines in now. I don't have to say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I'm in condition, Matt. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> the electrical engineer in me thinks about well, this is a multi-factor optimization and a lot of multi-factor op- optimizations, not to put too technical a spin on it, you have multiple optimal points. You can do yeah. it with one charging vendor and one sort of grid connection setup, or you can do it with a completely different setup. And both will work. Both might get similar kind of results. Which one's right? One might be more upfront cost with less operational. One might be lower upfront with higher operational exactly. costs. Yeah. What's the bullet you swallow? Well, there's so many moving parts in this. The point here is, and I think you've heard in some of your other podcasts, complexity really, really matters. Understanding what 
target you're trying to hit is really, really important because navigating that sort of capex versus opex, we might talk about contingency in a little bit and redundancy and risk, mm. that's a huge target to hit. It will give you an answer which of those options make sense. Which of the charging vendors can do what you want your system to do? They're not commoditized. I think a lot of procurement teams and don't want to tend to things to death, which I get, which is the right answer. But and to the dollar value. But to be fair, in this new space, like it's still about uptime. It's still about redundancy. Yeah. It's still about warranty. It's still about response times. These are assets that need to be looked after. And I think overall, there's a lot of learnings happening so far in terms of uptimes and parts availability and prescribed maintenance on charging. We've had a strong learning with that, but we've talked about the complexities. We've talked about the considerations, talked about how hard it is. I still lean back to it's fun. I still like we, and we work together and we get these results. We still have a great outcome we can achieve. And we're not talking about greenwashing or putting in these sustainable vehicles and environmental side of things, but we do get new technology working in a better way. We're not just buying, say, let's say a bus example, we're not just buying diesel at whatever the market allows us to. We can be, we as the industry or them as the operator can be a master of their own domain. They can control, they can sign up for, well, I will buy electricity at this rate for 5, 10, 15 years and I know exactly what my risk is for that. We can get a lot of efficiencies in operations and risk mitigation by doing all this. It's a whole new frontier, what energy markets can offer to transportation companies. It's the, I'm not going to use the word collision, but probably the wrong word Interface. in transport. Connection, perhaps, of two industries. And, you know, there's a lot you can do contractually and with physical hedges, you know, actually generating power in energy markets. And combining the two is a whole new frontier. So, as you were saying, fixing your fuel cost for 10, 15, 20 years, all of a sudden it's possible. You know, in diesel, that might... Ah, uh, yeah, no. It's... Yeah, I'm not a diesel person, but uh, I gather you can't I, really do I, that. I think 18 months ago when I was calculating total cost of ownership, I was doing a dollar thirty a litre. Now we're at two thirty, I think it is uh, at the moment. Last month in a certain part of Australia, I paid $2.95 a litre for diesel. Right. Um, That's significant. And yeah, I think hedging anything in today's environment would be get a very short, very expensive. What contract. I find yeah. interesting about this, though, is that you notice that we're not actually really speaking in ideological terms. Like it wasn't that long ago where we we're almost speaking about electromobility and stuff like that almost at that level mm. whereas now we are on the ground here, consideration talking yeah. about an actual business consideration that makes sense well the thing i think that a lot of the transportation industry hasn't seen is that a lot of these things have existed in the energy infrastructure world the energy markets world for a long long time ppas are a dime a dozen now mm. a lot of people can write either ppas for your own site which can unlock a vast array of, of options for financing equipment, so charging and solar and all sorts of things and combinations of all of them, but then got a customer who's all of a sudden become an extremely big power user, megawatt hours per day, like tens and tens and tens of megawatt hours per day, and they have to think about energy procurement very differently. And they're starting. It's not, it's, not a, it's not a fuel car that you throw in every vehicle. No, and they just they're on site or they're doing it from yeah, then, that, yeah purchase power agreement. They're not a minor user from the perspective of the retailers. Suddenly, they're a major user. They're talking about corporate PPAs you mm. know, that, that you might think of some of the large corporates procuring. They're doing it just for a handful of sites because they've got that much energy they need. And again, those things exist today. Like You can do that. But I think the interesting part about it is combine them all together. 
in this specific context for these particular operators, that's new. Having those things work for these the operators. The cross-section of transport and energy is ever apparent. Interface was the word we chose. I think overall, transport learning about energy and energy learning about transport, we would go back to partnerships in this emerging space and everyone working together. And it, it is collegiate because we have other sides of the business that each other needs to learn from to make this an outcome. And to be fair, I think overall, I'll say the word efficiency again and again and again, I have said it many times, but if you can control your energy source on-site, generated on-site or generated nearby, whatever, however it's done, you can control what's happening going forward. You're not reliant on fuel being in a bowser available at your location. And yes, we're not saying that these vehicles are going to take over the world and get rid of liquid fuel, but in the cases where the vehicles work and make sense, buses are a good one, especially public transport ones. Being self-reliant on your energy source is quite a big positive. Yeah. And hedging your bets and all the rest of it as well. That raises an interesting point, doesn't it? Because you notice that a lot of the discussions we've been having, it's, it's basically about owned charging infrastructure. We're not really sort of throwing it out there like that broader sort of... It's not the only option. Yeah. It's not, it's not the only option, but it's one that buses and big depots get along. It's one that the trucking side of things for one to 10 trucks is an apparent good idea. But into the future, I think there's going to be precinct tubs and all the rest of it. Line hall is going to be interesting. You can't exactly own your infrastructure up and down no. the Bruce Highway. Well, well I suppose that's where I was getting, going yeah, with yeah. that, right? So, like, so I, th I think, you know, transportation as an observation seems to like to own their own mm, land yes, and infrastructure. Yes. If you zoom out, this is the way we've started to think about this strategically. If you zoom out and fast forward sort of to 2040, 2050, there's how many tens of billions of infrastructure? Think about individual transport operators. Once they've gone through this transition, they might have tens, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars of infrastructure. They have built private, some sort of combination of shared. They're using this national infrastructure. It's like a fuel bowser. They turn up and they pay right. 30 but, cents a kilowatt hour. But the biggest operators will probably have to figure out on their balance sheets and in terms of investment, put down possibly nine-figure sums. That's not that aren't core assets that need a lot of expertise and management that are naturally owned by people like us, right? Mm. This is what we do. So I think there's an argument, and if you rewind to today, that okay, at the moment, the small projects, it doesn't make sense for a third party to own them. That said, solar PPAs are already a established. Third party owns a them. A third party and, owns yeah. them. It's, it's already happening. I think you, you, say, you say nine figures, and, and but they're probably investing that now in fuel. It's like they're paying yep. for someone to manage the asset and distribute the energy. Well, it's energy in a different form. It's energy Absolutely. in a different form. It uses different infrastructure, yeah, yeah. but it's, it's still the same required outcome. So Absolutely. Have, well, there are some transport companies that own fuel networks. Well, uh, <laughs> well I, I, think, I think what you'll find, there's a, I saw a great bit of analysis from Europe, which is there's a worth it line. That you know shows where it's economically worth it to switch to electric, and in Europe, due to the policies and the decarbonisation trajectories, it's a lot of the market, maybe a quarter or something like that, from memory, is worth it today, and that line rises quite considerably through sort of 2030, 2035, yeah. as the ICE vehicles roll off. That suggests that anything less than that line, the industry is leaving money on the table. So if, they're not if, at 20, if, if they're not 25 percent now then there's economic value or efficiencies that are left on the table and right. not attained. Yeah, you're right. It's saying that if you don't transition to electrification, you are doing yourself an economic disservice in terms of your, running your business. Now, I think in Australia, that line is different yeah. for lots of reasons yeah. and it's a different slope and different kind of, you know, all the things. Different freight tasks, different environmental Absolutely, 100%. Line, yeah. But I think quicker than people realise, that worth it line will change pretty quickly and 
a lot of operators will have to wrestle with, I'm leaving money on the table unless I do this quite quickly. I think the hard part about the worth it line is the jump. Mm. So the effort to plan out your roadmap for your site, for your fleet and all the rest of it may result in zero benefit today. Mm. So you put in the time, the money, the effort to understand what it is and you get no benefit then. But the sooner you start on that, the sooner you get your first truck, the sooner you get your 10th truck, the sooner you get your 100th truck, you're in that worth it line. You're in that worth it space. And it's a shift. It's stakeholder engagement, it's stakeholder management, it's it's change management mm. through from the site, the operator, the driver, all the rest of it. But it's a journey that we'll see those taking the plunge, being on the bleeding edge, probably having a competitive advantage to make sure they sit on that worth it line sooner rather than later. I would think so. And I think of this as it's big transformation coming and there's lots of parallels through history, you know, horse and cart to car, steam trains to diesel engines. There's a whole whole um, interesting point there. But Are you suggesting either... to bring back the horse? <laughs> <laughs> In some cases, it might be more efficient. Yeah, but, maybe, maybe, yeah. Um, yeah, Or man, fun. Um, <laughs> yeah. Man horses, thank yeah. you. Oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> but the, the point is, it's an, either an opportunity or a threat. And I think it can be polarizing. It can be both, to be fair. It, it's it threatening, but it also can be a significant opportunity. Yes. Um, I think there will be a lot of disruption where the operators that master it first might have an advantage as things inflect and this becomes business as usual. And they do actually have an advantage because they have the infrastructure already. They have the plans in place to set right. the platform, to set themselves up for quick movement into what they need to do. And they've mastered that they're new not starting from scratch. Right. And they've mastered that new optimization. So their dollar per kilometer is far lower and their energy procurement is, their fuel procurement effectively is, is considerably lower than you know what they do with diesel or, or petrol. And it's locked in for 10 years. It's got all these different... Imagine managing that, how much easier it'd be to manage a locked-in electricity cost than who knows what diesel's doing. I'd be fascinated to hear from some operators about what yeah, that we, looks like. Yeah, great to see the yeah, modeling, yeah. to be fair. Yeah. yeah, but what factors affect the cost of electricity? Looking at that, so you set a price. Say... Um, Thai uh, consumers like you blow-drying your hair. Well, exactly, right. Mm, mm. So I'm... This is serious now, Tim. Sorry. Um, <laughs> Um, uh, like gas for example so like Australia's got a heap of gas we export most of it we don't really index we never used to quarantine anything for domestic supply I think that's changed fairly recently from memory but market forces usually manufacturing and uh, export markets have an impact on that price what affects pricing in Australia? That's a very complex question probably will bore your listeners to death about the way the energy market works. And I, I wouldn't profess to say I'm a, a deep expert on these things, but- High um, level. <laughs> yeah, high, high level. Skim across the so surface. So I can understand. Yes, <laughs> yes just, just especially for Tim. Just get out the crayons. Um, yeah. yeah. yeah Butch's uh, paper. <laughs> the uh, yeah. quick answer is Australia has split the generation of electricity and the transport of electricity. So the transport is all the networks. Yep. Um, I work for one of the network's businesses. We can't own generation assets. Yep. We're just a conduit. We take power from A to B. Then there are a bunch of generators- solar, wind, battery, coal, gas, whatever. They connect to the grid and they sell energy into it. They can be owned by retailers or independent companies. The retailers are the ones that sell you the electricity. So when you look at your bill, you have a section which is the network charges. This is how much it costs to get electricity to your site. And this is how much you pay for that. And there's particular mechanisms for that. Then there's another section, which is this is how much it costs 
This is how much you're paying for the electricity that is generated. That's the retail element. They're actually reasonably independent. You, know, mm. you can change retailers, the network charges won't change. Uh, you can't really change networks. We have regulated monopolies in this country. There are things you can do. You can sort of go off grid. That's pretty extreme. You can sort of generate your own electricity in a large way, which can reduce your need for the grid. That's certainly an optim- one aspect of optimization in all of this. But at the end of the day, the grid is, by world standards and overall, actually extremely reliable in Australia. And it is a foundational principle of what this electrical transformation needs. And so it will be built out. There's going to be a lot more transmission and distribution, and it will need to support electrification, large and small, on our houses and streets and on large transportation systems alike. So it can be very confusing for a lot of... um, I suppose where I was going with that was, and I know it's an incredibly complex thing, but I think we've touched on it before. There is a leap of faith when it comes to taking that transformation step into... Mm that one vehicle or whatever and for some in- but some are mandated to be fair as well like yeah. there's some contracts that require well, it there are some things out there we've presented to some customers and they sort of look at it and they go how can that be true yeah like for example distribution center cover the roof with solar and put it on a ppa and you put a power purchase agreement for people who aren't aware of that where a third party owns the solar system and sells you energy a lot of times that ppa can sell you energy lower than you pay for the, from the grid you're saving money on that, that energy procurement. But that sets up effectively a leasing arrangement commercially where the site owner or the tenant is paying on a per-something basis, so per kilowatt hour in this case. It's cheaper than what they pay today. And you can put all kinds of stuff in that PPA. You can put charging systems, you can put batteries, you can put all sorts of things. And it's so there's a, a mini microgrid on a site that absolutely. you get the green benefits of at a cheaper rate but you don't own and maintain the asset. Right. You don't have to worry about whether it's operating or not. Someone comes and fixes it. They maintain it. They blow the dust off it, all the things. You're paying less for your energy than you do from your retailer. It's green because it's from solar on your roof. And you get a charging system, which you don't have to pay for up front. And the resilience of a battery to either back up or mitigate the peak hour costs. 100%. But But people look at that and go... How can that be true? Well, well it's, yeah, it's, not, it's, it's not sorcery. It works. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm sensing the voodoo already because I was just more like, um, so as I was alluding to before in the stability and energy prices, I mean, can you bank a price on that? Like, can you predict the, what that's going to look like over the course of a decade? Those solar power purchase agreements are routinely signed for 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah, where, right, so that wow. solar system will, will happily tick away and do its thing for 15, 20 years. A company like us will own it. 10 cents a kilowatt, whatever yeah, the fixed number is come to. Yeah. Right. And we will, a company like us will own it and maintain it, sell you that energy for, for 10 years, 20 years, whatever. Mm. Um, and that's effectively a locked in energy price that you know exactly what it's going to do. We can model the degradation of the panels. We can model within reason uh, cloudy days and what that's going to look like over a 20-year period and but you've guarantee mitigated, you You've a, mitigated that risk. You've guaranteed it because you take on the risk of the asset and the modeling. That portion of solar is quite mature at this point. Yeah. People have modeled that to death. They, they, you can kind of get They're pretty good at by now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Batteries are a little bit newer. That's definitely a frontier that everyone's still getting their head around. How do those warranties and guarantees work? Oh, yeah. Even um, outside of things, a lot of water going on the bridge and how that exactly yeah. works. Yeah. Guarantees and warranties, it's, it's worth discussing because yeah. what we see... It's a big transformation for a lot of operators. It is involves different sorts of operations, different sorts of risks. Fire risk around lithium-ion batteries is real. That needs to be very carefully considered. But the performance guarantees around these charging systems, you, you might offer, Volvo's trucks might work to a certain level and you know, this is what the performance they're going to give you and we're going to guarantee that for a certain year and there's a certain point and we're going to give you a warranty and all these things. That's mm. fairly well defined. 
charging system, well, without that, you can't run your trucks. So it's all of a sudden a critical asset. So to what level do you need that guaranteed Energy, performance, so energy supply. Availability, reliability, yeah. energy supply. And then that introduces this concept of what does contingency look like? What does redundancy need to look like? Is it 10% extra charges? Is it backups of all these things? Whatever yeah. to keep the, the grid on the depot going? Yeah, exactly. And then you're seeing examples worldwide where they've had to completely back up the whole depot so that if the grid goes down, they can still operate the buses because they're critical assets. They replace trains when the system's out. They provide community support in case of emergency. It opens this concept. And we've seen we this with buses. With, to be fair, we do it with fuel as well. Like we've got reserves. We don't have to keep a certain amount of reserves of fuel. Right. We're supposed well, to keep it in Australia, but it's half. It's, it's in America. Yeah, three quarters of it's in America. Yeah. So we kind of do this backup and resilience as it is with energy and liquid fuel as it is now. So it's a similar concept being applied to a newer technology in a newer way. We saw this play out in a big way with the, some of the bus work we've done where the concept of 100% electrification is like a completely different ballgame. Oh, yeah. It's a completely different risk landscape because all of a sudden you are wholly reliant on, a large reliance on the grid. For your operations, you are reliant on the electric vehicles. So if the charging system doesn't work, that matters a lot. If the grid connection doesn't work, that matters a lot. So how do you back up a system like that? You need as much land again to put a grid scale battery on that, that's difficult and expensive for a lot of players. What are the commercial realities of that risk? What abatements and, and penalties happen. do you incur? Yeah, right. Yeah. And what happens to your customers? Like breaking out the contracts and going, well, hang on, what, what actually happens if I don't provide these services? It's, there's a big security aspect here as well. It's real. And think about what? it this way. So if you've got a bus, 100% electrified bus depot, if that depot loses power for a couple of days, that serious risk. Like people need to think about that. But in most in most circumstances, that'd be because of a storm and an unforeseen event, right? Right. So probably the roads are flooded and all the rest of it. I think you said it before is where in Australia specifically, we're very lucky to have a very mature, very stable grid. Yes. Yes, there are unforeseen events that happen, but and we haven't experienced it with fuel yet. But you see overseas with people lining up for a day to get fuel out of a fuel station, waiting for their provision sending their drivers in some case to do it. But I think overall, like it's, it's definitely a consideration that needs to be made in terms of this resilience and reliability on the vehicle side and the charging side. But we are in a very lucky stage that we are a mature energy network in general. And we do have the ability, as you're experiencing with going through these larger projects, of what resilience looks like. Is it 10%, 50% of the energy needed on in batteries on site? Is it a... Lord forbid, bring in a generator and, and run the whole site off a, off a diesel generator to make do. But those fringe cases, those low likely outcomes, yes, they're catastrophic to some level, but the likelihood of needs to be considered, but it's quite low. I agree, but they're worth thinking about because it identifies where the edge points of your operations lie and where mm. the challenges and risks are. We did this exercise with one of the operators where we said, all right, let's at 50% electrification, well, if anything goes wrong, you roll out a bunch of diesel diesel vehicles. Yeah, and it fixes sweat the, the asset even more, or run them back to back. Yeah, right. get, get most out of those ones that are working. Right. And then you might be grid outages for more than a day or two are very rare. So Probably but, the batteries cover it anyway. Right. Yeah, a lot of time the batteries will cover the yeah, work. They're not exactly. exactly doing 100% day in, day out. Right. So you can probably ride through that. Can you still do that 85% electrification? Well, yeah, we could probably get by, do minimum service, that kind of thing. 95%? Oh, it's starting to get hard. Yeah. And so that exercise identifies the risk profile really changes as you get to 100%. It becomes vastly different. Um, all of a sudden, you have to rely on a great many other things. It's not a, it shouldn't prevent 
operators from trying to go that direction, but they just need to be aware of that journey and be well aware of what that risk profile looks like. They've as probably they done scale. the same thing with diesels, to be fair. Yeah. In terms of mitigation of supply, of uptime, all yeah. the rest of it, they've gone through the same journey. I'm starting to think that we should keep all our spare batteries, our critical parts on the shelf, not on our shelves, but in other people's shelves, using our batteries in, you know, as storage. To it's, be fair. it's not a bad idea. It's not a horrible honest. idea. They're very yes. dense batteries. They're not you know your flow batteries and traditional stationary batteries. In a second life, they will go to that, obviously. But in terms of our warranted backup batteries that we're keeping in country, putting them on sites for resilience and you know treating them as a commodity keeper, selling mm, yeah. selling the energy out of our own back. Holy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What does your insurance oh premium God. look yeah, like yeah. If, you, if you do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. I'm probably going to be a little bit contentious and probably- As always. <laughs> and wind up with a little bit of a, why are we even bothering when hydrogen is going to save everything? Oh, Matthew. Matthew. I know, right? Matthew. So this is, so isn't electric mobility just like a bit of a whistle stop on the way to stop fuel cell? Like, I like that analogy to yeah. be fair as well. Yeah. Look, I know a lot of really, really talented, smart people working in the hydrogen industry and they're doing really interesting work. My personal view is hydrogen seems a long way off and it always seems to be five years from being five years away. It has a long road from my understanding to forgive the pun, to get to an affordability and viability point where electrification is either already here or at the doorstep. And in the time that hydrogen matures, my personal belief is you will see the simplest way to put it is batteries taking over the world. It is just the reality today of doing it. You're seeing it in Europe. They are pressured and required to transition by 20, what, 35, 2030, depending on the, on the jurisdiction. They can't sit around and wait for hydrogen to arrive. They will just do it today. And if they've made an investment in a vehicle today for the next 15, 20 years, that's probably going to be it until, until that asset is retired. Um, transitioning again is going to be difficult. I, you know, I'm, I'm certainly a little bit biased. I build electrical systems, but we get asked all the time, can you build hydrogen into proposals? Yes, I think we should, but not yet because it is just not mature enough. It's not ready. And we're seeing that, you know, chatting with government, pitching proposals for large-scale infrastructure across entire jurisdictions and they say can you make hydrogen and like it is just not firm enough and i'm sure there'll be an uprising of, of listeners who might disagree with me but putting hard numbers and guaranteed positions and buildable assets that can be executed today in my view hasn't really been forthcoming i think from our side of things and i'll put my solely truck hat on when it comes to this is that you're right to some extent the batteries will grow as we're waiting for the maturity of the hydrogen product to get there. Battery technology and its capabilities will grow. There are going to be, and I'm not going to say fringe cases, but there will be cases where a zero emissions vehicle can only operate as hydrogen yeah. to some extent. We have a very unique fake task in Australia. Electric is only capped at a certain level. Electric is simple. Electric is easy. Electric is now. Well, it's easy to some extent, but hydrogen isn't but it does allow for more we can put more trailers more distance more whatever it is but your statement about it's five years away from being five years away does seem to ring true and i'm not saying from the volvo side of thing but you remember the first time you heard of a big hydrogen project coming for truck or whatever it was it hasn't happened in the time frame um that was originally promised it will be a big enabler of the decarbonization of our freight task here in australia uh, but it's not the be-all and end-all. For us, you know, it is an evolution of our electric trucks. Our electric trucks are the first stop. They're on the batteries. We refine that. We get really good at making battery electric vehicles. We then add a fuel cell to that chassis 
It still has batteries on it. It's still an electric truck. It just has a hydrogen fuel cell that turns hydrogen into electricity on the fly. So it's not one before the other. It's an evolution of to enable different use cases. And this is all to say that it's not all about pure electrification, electromobility with electric or hydrogen trucks. But you know, the Pilbara at four trailers at 250, 270. Uh, yeah, let's round out. Let's round out. Yeah. You know, hydrogen ain't touching that for a long time. Mm. Like we're going to have an internal combustion engine diesel doing that job here in Australia. They are a very, very unique freight task. Hopefully it's on a, a reduced carbon emissions fuel where HVO, hydrogen vegetable oil or something like that, hydrogen injection to supplement the diesel usage. But there is a, a plethora of different abilities and technologies. Plethora. Plethora. Thank you, Matthew. I learned something today. You did. From you. Hmm. <laughs> uh, overall, it's, it's going to match what is best use case for that vehicle. And, and you talked about 100% electrification of the fleet. Well, maybe that's not the right thing to do. Maybe um, the yeah. diesel bus that runs on HBO at the 10% is the right thing to do as a resilience plan. I think that risk argument highlights there needs to be another technology in there. To, yeah. to mitigate, it is liquid fuel based potentially to mitigate risk. It, it's sensible to us thinking about large infrastructure. I think the longer term strategy aspect of this is building commercial models, assets, infrastructure that when other technologies come along, be it hydrogen or, or something else, they can pivot. You can put in the hydrogen infrastructure, yep. you can allow the operators to make a choice, um, provide them what they need. Ultimately, this, this is market driven, right? This is the market Definitely. Market needs that. Well, we're going to try and provide that, you know. Mm. Either way, that's going to keep you gainfully employed because even hi- creation of hydrogen itself is quite energy intensive. Huge. Like compressing Absolutely. it and stuff Huge. like that. So yeah. um, whether you're doing grid connections to depots or grid connections to hydrogen refueling stations, um, you're going to have something to do. 100%. There's so much growth in networks. It's not a sexy space. As an electrical engineer, I remember studying it and everyone went to work for the networks. And for 100 years, nothing changed. And all of a sudden, renewables came along and it looked really, really interesting. And now uh, hydrogen and, uh, and other things are making it an even more and evs are making it a more interesting place again so it's a fascinating space it's it's a really interesting frontier to be working on as tim said like there are some really fascinating problems to solve and it's really fun solving them it's really satisfying to be like hey we we actually got material tangible results for this customer for this industry to actually move the ball one yard further or one meter further along so that everyone can benefit fantastic Well, I really want to thank you for taking the time to come and talk to us today. It's been uh, really interesting. My absolute pleasure. Thank you, guys. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Emerging Possibilities. Send your comments, suggestions, and questions to emerging.possibilities at volvo.com. And of course, remember to rate and review this show.